All right. Well, ladies, it's Kathy Laurie, and it is my turn to talk about heaven and hell. Um, I, I don't even know what to uh, title this message, maybe just the afterlife. But I want to begin with a story. I think it's always nice to hear a little story, don't you, <laughs> on a heavy subject? But it must have been, oh, goodness, um, Jonathan was three or four years old. Seems like a zillion years ago now, but he was just this little guy, and he and I were alone. Uh, we'd been driving in the car for a while, and we were pulling into the garage one afternoon. And for whatever reason, I had heaven on my mind. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Anyway, I, I began to talk to him about how Jesus was coming back for us and that we would all spend our lives together in heaven with him and that this um, sad world, which had so many troubles, was going to be over and we were going to a new world and a new place to spend forever with Jesus. And I thought I had done a pretty good job speaking of all the things that I was looking forward to about heaven when I realized that Jonathan had gotten really, really quiet in the backseat. So I glanced in my rearview mirror and turned it to see his face, and I saw just this look of worry. And I said, Jonathan, are you okay? What do you think? And he responds to this little tiny voice. He goes, Mom, I don't want to leave this beautiful world that God made. <laughs> and I, I thought for a moment how adorable he was. And then the next thing I thought was, obviously, I haven't done a good enough job explaining to him the good news of what heaven is about. And that heaven is not disconnected or completely opposite or different from all the beauty and love and joy that we have known here on earth. So let me reassure you about that. If you think of heaven and you're like, oh, this weird, ethereal, disembodied state is going to be so strange. I don't know if I'm going to like this. Let me just tell you, it's going to be an even more beautiful world than the one that we know now. As a matter of fact, we're talking about a world that is going to be restored and enhanced and put back to what it once was in paradise in the Garden of Eden. And actually, heaven has already started in our hearts. Do you understand that? For those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, it began that first Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, that a new kingdom and a new order was initiated in this world. And because of heaven and the fact that heaven is true— and if we really understand heaven, and if we're very heavenly-minded, you not only have the joy and peace today and the comfort and hope we all need when life gets hard, but we have a motivation in this world to be agents of God's love and mercy. So let me ask the question, how does heaven make us live an unusual, remarkable, and purposeful life here, right? There are two things about heaven, and there's so much I could say, but two things about heaven that I want to actually highlight. First is the impact that belief in heaven can have on the world that we're living in right now. And second of all, the impact that it will have upon our own hearts and our personal lives. You know, if there is no heaven, if there is no God, and you are just trapped here on this earth, in this world, within the short span of perhaps, you know, if you're lucky, 70, 80 years at best. And if anything happens to you and hurts your health or your wealth or your happiness, 
you're pretty much done for, right? I don't know about you, but I've been hearing an awful lot about AI lately, okay, artificial intelligence. And one story I was absolutely fascinated was about a professor at the Toronto Metropolitan University and a research affiliate with the MIT Media Lab. Whatever that is. Sounds impressive, though, right? Anyway, he's been building a platform called Augmented Eternity, which allows someone to create a digital persona from a dead person's photos, texts, emails, social media posts, public statements, and blog entries that will be able to interact with relatives and others. He said that he receives emails almost weekly from people who are terminally ill asking if there's a way to conserve their legacy for their loved ones. He said he is now a beta group of about 25 people testing his product. His goal is for consumers to one day be able to create their own eternal digital entities. Huh. (laughs) Okay. And in June... Amazon unveiled a new feature it's developing for Alexa, in which a virtual assistant can read aloud stories in a deceased loved one's voice after hearing just a minute of that person's speech. Eternal digital entities by allowing AI to create a version of you with your face, voice, and mannerisms. Why? Because... Darwinian evolution and scientism and all that, that this life is all there is, will never satisfy the eternity that God has placed in each and every one of us. They're doing it so members of their family can have ongoing conversations and that you will live a version of eternal life that will be in cyberspace forever. We long for love joy, community, feasts, heaven. And heaven is promised to us in that and all so much more because of the words of Scripture. And that is where we stand, folks. We are standing squarely on what has been revealed to us, we believe, by divine inspiration and the Holy Spirit to tell us what we need to know about heaven. Why is it that we feel like heaven is just something we have to wait for? Have you ever thought of that? That we're just here to bide our time and think about, oh gosh, let's just get through this day. Right. What we need is a proper view of what the Bible teaches because of the life-transforming impact that heaven and the doctrine of heaven should have on us right now. And I want to start with something completely practical, (laughs) something that is tangible to the world around us. Our belief, first of all, in heaven will cause us to have the greatest impact on the world in which we're living in. To be heavenly-minded, then, is to be more earthly good, not less. We want to live out our lives as God's ambassadors here on earth right now. Is heaven a place of order? Well, then let's have an ordered life and an ordered home and an ordered family. Is heaven a place of beauty? Then let's be agents of that beauty and create beauty wherever we are, in the way we see ourselves, in the way we dress, in our homes, in our church, in our neighborhoods. That's why we clean up, why we dress to reflect that beauty, why we don't throw our trash in the street or in the ocean, because we want heaven to be reflected in the way we behave right here, right now. Is heaven a place of community? Then let's begin to build that right now. 
is having a place of healing of all the nations, then let's live in peace with our neighbors, with our families, with our friends, even with our enemies, and work for forgiveness and healing in all those places, in our churches, in our communities. There's a lot that we could say about the belief of heaven upon our hearts, the effect that it should have. But the criticism is so often leveled at believers as saying, oh, you Christians, you believe in heaven is pie in the sky after you die. It's some form of escapism. You don't want to deal with the harsh realities of life. Goodness, let me tell you, if you're a Christian and you read your Bibles, your eyes are wide open to the harsh realities of life more than the average person out there who lives in a state often of denial. But the biblical view of heaven is that heaven is not only for us after we die. It's right now, ladies. If you believe the Bible is not just for us and for the healing of our hearts, but it's for the healing of this broken world, then we have a job to do and a life to live with purpose right now. In the lesson guide this week, we had references from the book of Revelation that spoke to us about wiping tears and the healing of the nations. And we can see that the best is yet to come. But if you really believe in heaven, you'll seek to show mercy, compassion, healing, to be present, to wipe the tears away of someone else. God is among us. God is with us. God is in our hearts. And it should be reflected in our words and in our actions right? Heaven, if we understand it rightly, if we think it through, doesn't mean, oh my goodness, this world is just going to burn and it isn't important. That is not an accurate view of this world. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, but early on in Pastor Chuck's ministry, he's preaching to his small congregation about the signs of the times, and it's, it's a pretty narrow vision he casts. He says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And that's true. We are to endure to the end and to be faithful. But if you just keep reading that passage that he quoted, the very next verses say, parts of it we often forget, that this gospel of the kingdom should be preached in all the world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. What is the gospel of this kingdom? this kingdom of God that we're to preach in all the world, in all our world. If we truly view the end times rightly and our view of heaven rightly, it should be far more than a personal ticket out of hell into heaven. Do you know Christians have been at the forefront of human rights, of charities, of orphanages, of hospitals, of centers of education, of care for single mothers, of leadership in the arts and literature and music that impact the world we live in to this day. Some of these famous people, you may have heard their names, Pascal, amazing scientist, Copernicus, John Newton, Galileo, Rembrandt, Beethoven, Dostoevsky, T.S. Eliot, J.R.R. Tolkien, William Wilberforce, Mueller, George Mueller, who started these orphanages for children, Martin Luther King. Oh my goodness, think about the fact that most of the Ivy League universities that we have today, with the exception of one, were founded by Christians because they had a view of heaven and a purpose here on earth. C.S. Lewis said that history shows that people who did the most for this present world were the ones who thought the most of the next one. What are you doing? What are you doing with your life here on earth? 
How are you living out the gospel of this kingdom? How are you preaching it through your words and through your actions? The Amplified Version of Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind, which means keep focused habitually on the things above, the heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth, which only have temporal value. So see the eternal value of things around you, ladies, and let heaven fill your thoughts. Give your heart to these heavenly things. These are the things that matter, the people in your life, the gifts that God has instilled in you. Because one day our master is going to come back and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you, with this life I have given you? Second of all, not only will the strong belief in heaven have an impact on earth, heaven will impact us personally. You know, right now we're planning a 50th anniversary trip. Greg and I are going to be married 50 years next February. And we are going to a place that we've never been. We are going to visit the island of Capri on the Amalfi Coast, and um, we have bought a picture book, and we're looking at it. We're reading about it. We're watching YouTube videos. Um, we've we've read blogs about it, and we've seen movies that were um, filmed there, and it all looks so incredibly beautiful. The village is built up on the cliffs over the deep blue sea, so colorful and incredible. The pictures of the food, oh my goodness, and the flowers— Will it live up to all of this? I don't know. We're studying it. We're planning for it. We're imagining it. I hope it will. But let me tell you that whatever sights and beauty and sounds and smells and tastes that you can imagine that heaven will be, it will not only disappoint us, it will exceed it. And we come to realize that this world isn't all there is. There's more. And haven't we all sensed that? Even in the greatest achievements or the happiest days of our life, haven't we longed for more? Haven't we wished that it could go on or that it would increase? Or maybe it was, you know, it was great, but it wasn't as great as we thought. You know, we don't have to live in FOMO that we're going to miss out on something in this world because there's more, ladies. We have a perspective on every good day that we ever had, and we have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And if we've tasted that, you have tasted the down payment of the joy of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and it is a down payment that heaven is even greater. We don't have to live with this view that I got to get all I can and can all I get. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 tells us, I has not seen or ear heard or entered into your heart the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We have that down payment, don't we? But it's even hard to wrap our minds around it. But what the Bible teaches about heaven will help us face our best days with perspective, not make it all an idol about those things, but it'll also help us face our worst days, our worst days on earth. That perspective of heaven will change us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So great that we can't even conceive it. Ladies, I'm calling you to pray today. Lord, infect my imagination with these truths. Help me see the glory of these things that I might be of the greatest earthly good, and that I might have a perspective on my life now 
in the good times and in the hard times. Okay, now we come to the second piece of this message, the most important subject of hell, of judgment, okay? And you're thinking, well, honestly, Kathy, and I actually had my sister tell me that someone, she overheard someone say, why are we studying theology? (laughs) It's a good question. Um, We're studying theology because it has a great impact on the choices we make and the life we live now. We need to know what Jesus said and why he spoke of hell so often. Today, more than ever, the doctrine of hell has fallen out of favor, not only among people in general, but even among people who go to church. And we see even ministers avoiding this very subject. First of all, and I want to pause right here, to speak of hell flippantly without any kind of tears is really misrepresenting the Lord Jesus. I had a friend when I was growing up and I went to school with her. We were both non-Christians. This is junior high, a zillion years ago. And the night that I heard the gospel and I received Jesus Christ and, and was saved, really, and changed, she was with me. I stood up to pray and I looked down and she sat on the ground as we heard the same gospel message. And I said, Cindy, stand up. Don't you you want this? She did stand. But I will say that immediately after that night, she resumed her life as before, as nothing had happened. The last time I saw her was shortly before I graduated, and her life um, was a hollow vacuum of what it once was. Her youth, her beauty was gone. I'm telling you, we were just like 16 years old at this time. She had this blank stare about her, and I pleaded with her that day to come back to Christ, to come to Christ. I reminded her of that night when we heard the gospel. Her life was already a living hell of addiction, of loneliness, of emptiness, of pain, and of regret. I wanted to call her after I graduated, and I was married to Greg, and I thought, I need to try one more time to reach her. I called her home, and her brother answered the phone. And I said, this is Kathy Martin. I'm an old friend of Cindy's from high school. Can I talk to her? I heard him say, just a moment. He covered the phone, and I could barely make out what he was saying to his mother or what she said back to him. But when he returned to the phone, he told me flatly, Cindy had died of a heroin overdose over a year ago. She was probably maybe just 18. The news was so heartbreaking, I was speechless. I pleaded with her, and I plead with you to hear these words that Jesus says about hell and take them very seriously. And with tears in my eyes, I want to say Jesus talks about love and forgiveness and grace, but he also talks about hell, and he did so with tears. Remember when he saw Jerusalem, the city that he loved, and he said, you killed the prophets and you stoned those that were sent to you. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus put it clearly in several ways in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 that there were two ways. There were two trees. There were two claims, and there were two foundations. There were two ways, the narrow gate and the wide gate, and many were going down the wide gate. There were two trees. There was a good tree that bore good fruit and a bad tree that bore bad fruit. And he said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
There were two claims. One claim seemed very religious, pious, even spiritual, and said, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus insists that it's not the one who says and gives him lip service by saying the words, Lord, Lord, but contradicts them that by the claim in the way that they live. Listen, we can't just be about making claims about Jesus. We have to back it up with how we live and the choices we make. And the last of the four statements Jesus made was about the two foundations that we build our life on. One building on rock that is a solid foundation on the gospel, and another building on sand, their own foundation that they have created for their own life. And when the storms come and assaults these two houses, the first one remains immovable. The ground on which the second one is built turns into this quagmire. These are such sharp contrasts that Jesus is giving us about the two ways and the two claims and the two foundations and the two gates. Let me tell you, Scripture has Jesus pleading with us and all of the apostles and prophets pleading with us, choose life and live. And then we're given this amazing story, this parable of Jesus telling us about Lazarus and the rich man. And this is a very important passage. Remember, this is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is telling us about this. And I pray that as you have done your lessons this week, and I am asking you to meditate on the passages where these doctrines are found in order that it would affect your heart and your mind and your perspective. Listen, if the dead be not raised, Isaiah tells us, then let's eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But we know that the dead are raised because Jesus tells us so. And in this passage, what is he telling us about death and hell? Well, for one, it's talked about what Jesus is telling us is that hell is a place of separation. Second, it's a place of disintegration. And third, it's a place of self-deception. I'm going to hit on this pretty quickly because our time is going fast. It's a place of separation. We see in this passage that the rich man is calling out to Lazarus, and we're told in the passage that Father Abraham tells this rich man, my son, between you and us, there is a great gulf fixed. In hell, there is a separation of you from the presence of God and from all that heaven promises. That's what hell is. Hell is a separation, and all the the figures and images and types and pictures of hell that are in Scripture— as horrifying as they may be of literal fire, of outer darkness, all of that, the reality is incredibly worse than the metaphor, okay? So often people think of hell and immediately think of God as concocting a dungeon with a rack and red-hot irons that he's going to torture us with. But let me tell you, in the end, hell will be the final outcome of eternal separation from God. Let me put it this way. When we sin and we don't repent of our sin and we persist in it, it is basically saying to God, leave me alone. Hell will be the consequence of those choices that we make in this life when we tell God that we don't need him. I had the privilege of getting to know Ruth Graham and Billy Graham and spending some time in their home, and she told us the story of a minister's son who returned from university. He had a fledgling scholar's arrogance, and he flatly stated to his father, Dad, I'm not sure at all I can follow you any longer in your simple Christian faith. She told us that the father's eyes pierced his son's, and he said, Son, that is your freedom, your terrible freedom. 
C.S. Lewis has also said something in his book, The Problem of Pain, in his chapter on hell, and he said, hell is the greatest monument in the history of the world to human freedom. He says, what do you want God to do? Do you want God to forgive them? But alas, they won't be forgiven. What do you want him to do? Leave them alone? Alas, Lewis said, that is exactly what he's going to do. Hell is a place of eternal separation. Hell is also this place of disintegration. Oh my, we read Jesus' parable and we wonder, why Why does Lazarus have a name? And the rich man doesn't have a name. He had riches, he had pleasures, he had temporal gratification that came and went. And when all of that was taken, there was nothing left of him. When he loses his riches, he loses himself. In the very first psalm we read, the wicked are not like the righteous, who are like a life-giving tree, but like the chaff which the wind drives away. Hush, what is chaff? It's that useless part, the hull of a grain of wheat, no value, inedible, lifeless, purposeless. That is the sum of the life of the wicked in the end. Without God, you lose. You lose not only everything you have built your life on apart from God, but you lose your very selves. You can see this in the beginning stages in a process, a lifestyle. I saw it in the life of my friend Cindy, a shallow life without any thought for God. Jesus put it so simply, you seek to save your own life, you will lose it. You can't. But if you lose your life and come to me, surrendering it to me, you will find it. It's that seeking one's own way of salvation that brings you to that place of helpless disintegration. And lastly, hell is a place of self-deception. That should go without saying, but you notice three things about the rich man. First, he's still ordering Lazarus around. Can you believe it? Here he is in hell, in torment, and he's telling Father Abraham, hey, send Lazarus down here to wipe my brow. Like, Lazarus is still the poor beggar at his gate, not recognizing that he is the beggar. He is in utter denial about where he is and about why he's there and about who he is. And do you see what that is? That is self-deception. It's worth noting he doesn't ask for forgiveness or a second chance, not at all. As a matter of fact, he's saying to Father Abraham, hey, I didn't get a fair shake. I didn't get all the information. Nobody told me about this. I have five brothers, and they need to get enough information. If I got enough information, I wouldn't be here. What is he doing? He's blaming God in hell. There is a self-deception, and there is still a blaming of God. He doesn't even talk to God. He doesn't ask forgiveness. He asks for comfort and ease. He's still ordering Lazarus around. He has no idea where he actually is. And this self-deception, through his selfishness, is absolutely realized in this eternal state called hell. It's a place of separation. It's a place of disintegration. It's a place of self-deception. And yet, All of Scripture and Jesus himself is calling out, come to me, come to me, look to me, and I will save you from yourself and give you glory and beauty that you have no idea of. It's not until we understand hell, ladies, that we'll ever know how much you mean to Jesus, because it is hell that Jesus took on the cross. It is on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like the rich man in hell, Jesus said, I thirst, and no one quenched his thirst. 
He experienced that cosmic eternal thirst so that we don't have to. He was separated. He was isolated and alone. He was undone. He said, all my bones are out of joint. In that famous passage in Isaiah, on the cross, he suffered an eternity of hell, but he did it so that we don't have to face it. In Isaiah, we're told, listen to this scripture, the results of his suffering, the father shall see and he shall be satisfied. Whatever depths of hell Jesus Christ experienced on the cross, when he looks at you, if you have asked his forgiveness, he says, it was worth it. What I paid compared to what I get, it is worth it. And what does he get? He gets you and he gets me. Thanks be to God. We don't have to face eternity in hell. No one does. But if we're determined to say, leave me alone, he will leave us alone. Oh Lord, we pray that the reality of these truths that we have studied would not just be a consolation for us to hold in our hearts to ourselves, but it would impact our perspective on everything. That, Lord, it would empower us with the passion to live for you in the joy and confidence that heaven awaits us and that nothing is purposeless, but it all can be redeemed. That we would look around us to the lives of people that need the gospel and that we would plead with them and share with them and tell them of this salvation that we have found in you. And Lord, we also pray for those that might be listening that are unclear about these things. We ask you, Jesus, remove the blindness, show them the self-deception, the self-disintegration, the isolation, and the destruction and deception that they are facing in their own lives. Open their eyes that they might say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, only to find you rush in with your arms wide open in forgiveness to them. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Thank you for the solid foundation we stand on. And we thank you for this study. In Jesus' name, amen.